a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. All kidnappers but mine should hang, read the headline in the April 14, 1935 issue of the New York Daily News. It was a quote from Mary McElroy, who two years earlier was held at gunpoint by four men seeking a small fortune from her father. The article says that Mary collapsed when she found out one of her captors was sentenced to death. She felt so much guilt about the fate of her kidnappers that she began to isolate herself from her community, at one point wandering miles away from her home with no purpose. She began to advocate for their release. She wrote a book, and she filed a court brief to stay the execution. She even visited them in prison, bought them gifts, and helped at least one of them get a job once he was released. The public was shocked. They could not understand why she was protecting her kidnappers. They sent her letters calling her names and asking her, what's the matter with you? The answer may not be what it seems. Why did Mary McElroy want to defend the men who kidnapped her? Was it what we know today as a classic case of Stockholm Syndrome? Or was it something else entirely? I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's 1933 at the house of Mary McElroy in Kansas City, Missouri. Mary is the daughter of a well-to-do city manager named Judge Henry F. McElroy. So she lives in a mansion with a staff of maids, and it seems like a pretty good deal considering we're in the midst of the Great Depression. Well, sure, but it's not all uh, sunshine and butlers. She lost her mother at 12 years old. Lucky for Mary, her father is... He's a great dad. He sh somebody should get that guy a mug. He really focuses on his children and raises both of them. He doesn't just have the maid do all the work, which was probably pretty common in that time. He's a very involved father. So it's Saturday morning in May, 1933. Mary is doing her thing, getting ready for the Riverside racetrack with her friends. I'm like imagining a Mary Poppins vibe, you know what I mean? Like they bet on the racehorses, they have parasols and like large feathery hats, you know. Yeah, all the horses were pastel-colored horses. Sure. So she's getting ready, and her maid, Miss Hedda Christensen, draws her a bath and pours a luxurious bubbly soap into what I imagine is a uh, clawfoot porcelain tub. It's around 11 o'clock in the morning, and Mary steps into the beautiful, luxurious, I imagine, lavender-scented bubble bath, and she doesn't have a care in the world. What's that noise? Miss Hedda goes to answer the door. What is it, please? She asks through the screen door. And there is a rumpled man in a coat with overalls and dark glasses standing there in the doorway. I don't think he looks like he's from that part of town. He tells Miss Hedda he's there to deliver face creams and powder for the judge's little girl, which is a pet name that Mary's father used for her, despite the fact that she is 25 years old. <laughs> Miss Hedda is actually expecting a delivery like this because Mary has a facial appointment later on in the day. So when the man comes to the door offering face creams, this doesn't raise any red flags to her, which again, in the middle of the Great Depression, my God, what a life. 
Miss Hedda isn't just going to let this guy in, though. She walks to the foot of the stairs and calls up to Mary, who's luxuriating in her bubble bath, and Mary says she doesn't need any face creams. Her face is creamed enough. Sure, and the screen door at this point's still locked, but the man insists that he has these samples and can he just leave them for her, so Miss Hedda opens the door. At this moment, from within his coat, the man pulls out a sawed-off shotgun and tells her not to get excited, that he's there for Mary. Miss Hedda feels faint. She looks down the barrel of the gun and obeys his orders. He comes inside, and behind him there's another guy in dark glasses carrying a second shotgun. They tell Miss Hedda, go get the little girl. But before any of them can make it upstairs, Mary, upstairs, hears what's going on. And she slams the bathroom door shut and she yells, go away, please go away. Which again, I'm sorry, I just, it would be so nice if they were like, yep, sorry. And they did. No, (laughs) shockingly, they don't. They don't. Honor this request. They they approach the bathroom door, and the first man, who's got a very forceful, commanding presence, he's got boss vibes, and he tells her, open the door or I'll shoot. And Mary, she doesn't really have a choice but to obey, so she walks out of the bathroom in her dressing gown, and this first man tells her, go get dressed. Miss Hedda follows her into the bedroom, and they shut the door. So the two men are upstairs, and they tell her to hurry to get dressed because they're men in the 1930s and clearly they don't understand how many undergarments are involved in a woman's outfit. But Mary, I think in like sort of a way to assert her power, she takes her time dressing, which I well, I love. She, yeah, she has to find something appropriate for the occasion. You know, what do you wear? Kidnapped chic? Victim formal? Abducted business casual? I mean, it is the 1930s. It's important to adhere to a strict dress code. Sure. So through the door, Mary asks, what do you want, anyhow? And the voice replies, we're going to kidnap you. We're going to make your father pay $60,000 for you, which, again, feels like very Bond villain vibes, where it's like, I'm going to tell you exactly what we're going to do. Now, as you might expect, this is all pretty upsetting to Mary. And she says to them, why, that's an out-and-out insult. I should be worth more than that. Mike Katz the druggist they kidnapped here a few months ago, brought a hundred grand. And Mary, good for you. I like where your head's at right now. Well, she's all about equal pay. I mean, that's very important to Mary. So she steps out of the bedroom in her kidnapped chic, which is a pink checkered dress and beige stockings. And on her way out of the house, she grabs a white hat and a purse with $7 inside. Not $60,000, $7. She tries to comb her hair, but the men are like, no, 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 enough. Let's go, let's go, let's go. So they push her out of the house. They put her in the back seat of their uh, black Chevrolet sedan and they drape a cloth over her head so she can't see. And poor Hedda is just watching in terror and cries out, oh, please bring her back safely. We can't stand to have Mary away from us. But the bossy guy just shuts her down and he tells her, stay right there. And in 10 minutes... Not a second sooner, she will be allowed to call her boss, Judge McElroy. So Miss Hedda watches as these men drive away with Mary McElroy. And they've told her to wait 10 minutes and she's so afraid that they're going to do something to Miss Mary if she doesn't, that she waits 10 minutes before doing anything out of fear. Mary, meanwhile, is in the back of the car going who knows where. At this point... It's now all up to her kidnappers. So the car's going down the road, bumping and rattling. Mary can't tell where. And then finally, it slows to a stop. And she hears the kidnappers get out of the car. And the bossy guy tells her, Now, little girl, get up and walk where we lead you. I'll hold this robe over your head. Don't try to look. I like that it's kind of like an honor system. You know, like, no peeking. But... I guess Mary doesn't peek. She steps out of the car and she goes along with them. She takes a couple of stumbles as she's walking because she can't see. And then they walk to a set of stairs. So they're extra careful getting her down them. The robe over her head is pulled away and she's looking at, I guess, her new home, really, for the time being. It's a basement. 
It's about eight by 10 feet with a dirt floor and concrete walls. And there's a cot there for her and a small fan in the corner. And they handcuff her to a five or six foot chain that's bolted to the wall, uh, you know, in case she gets any funny ideas about escaping. They bring her a pillow and some blankets for her bed. They put a light bulb in the room and not the flickering torture kind. They say they want her to be comfortable, which I'm sure she's super grateful for. I mean, they did just take her out of a beautiful, luxurious bath to bring her there. So I don't know where we lie on the comfort scale, but frankly, I I bet she wishes they brought those face creams too. Immediately, bossy guy brings Mary a pen and paper and he commands her to write a letter to her father that explains everything. Now, he sort of works through with her what the key details are going to be in the letter, but he lets her he lets her write it in her own voice, you know. Have fun with it. She writes, Dear Dad, I have been kidnapped. They demanded $60,000. If this is reported to the police or newspapers, they will ask for $100,000 and I may not be returned. You will hear later where to send it. Any letter without my thumbprint is counterfeit. We are off the gold standard, so send used currency. I will be released six hours after you send it. They want 20,000 in 20s, 20,000 in 10s, and 20,000 in fives. If this money is marked, they will harm you or Henry Jr. So be careful. They have treated me with great consideration and I am not frightened. My love, Mary. What a review. It's like staying at the Hilton. They treated me with great consideration, and I am not frightened. Come on, she's probably a little bit frightened. Uh, Mary inks her finger. She puts a fingerprint on the back of this letter, and it is whisked away by an unnamed man. And then, not long after that, they have her write a second letter to her dad. This one reads, When you receive information where to go, go alone in your car. If any detectives follow you, you won't be met. The money will be checked for counterfeit marks before I am released. If any trouble comes after I am released, they will try to avenge it. I love you, Mary. And this letter is sealed with Mary's fingerprint. Back at the McElroy home, Mary's dad, Henry McElroy, is freaking out. I mean, he's pretty anxious, obviously. As soon as he got the call from his maid, Miss Hedda, he called the director of the police and they both book it to his house. But at this point, very few people know what's going on. His neighbors don't really notice his arrival home and they're trying to keep a low profile. Now, a little bit about Judge McElroy. He's a man who is used to being in control. He's a highly respected judge and has powerful connections in Kansas City. He has cruisers, radio, and regiments of patrolmen at his beck and call. Then there are his friends, bankers, businessmen, and politicians. They all rush over to Henry's house. They are furiously trying to piece together what is happening, what is going on. The police interview Miss Hedda about the kidnappers and what they looked like, but there's little they can do but wait. And the judge says, you don't know how it is. You can't know how it is to be helpless, to be helpless and yet to know one's duty. You know, I just think this whole thing must be pretty strange for him. He is a man that is used to having the whole city at his fingertips and he controls it. And now he feels, like he said, totally helpless. And at 7.15 that night, that first letter arrives at the McElroy home. And then at 9.30, the second letter arrives. And, well, believe it or not, neither one really eases Judge McElroy's mind. You know, if anything, he's more distraught. He doesn't know what to do but to trust these men. He has no choice. And he's not sure what their intentions are. He doesn't know if Mary's safe or if she's writing them under duress. She could be dead already, for all he knows. It also feels like with all of these powerful people, it does feel like if there's an attack on one of them, it feels like it's an attack on all of them, right? It feels Mm. like this sort of points out a vulnerability they all have. And so while Judge McElroy is wealthy and well-to-do and it's the Great Depression, they don't have $60,000 just lying around. He can't just grab stacks of cash out of his couch cushions or, you know, 
in his mattress. He knows that he can get the money from the bank, but that's going to take time. And that's the only thing he feels he doesn't have. So he asks his friends to loan him the money and they're able to raise kind of a lot, 30000 But again, that's only half of what the kidnappers are asking. And even if he can find the money, he's totally at the whim of what these men who have his daughter want. He has no idea what they'll do next or even if they'll honor their word. Meanwhile, let's go back to that farmhouse Mary's hanging out at. She's sitting in that basement listening to uh, some light footfalls overhead, and she can smell something cooking. Smells delicious. Certainly better than the uh, dirt she's uh, surrounded in downstairs. Well, it's not just dirt, Quinn, because right next to her is a cute little cot and a radio that the men gave her. And she listens to a local radio station... Maybe they're playing some tunes. Maybe it's talk radio. I don't know what's playing in the 1930s. But then she suddenly hears heavier footsteps coming down the stairs. The men walk into this dingy basement, and they're carrying a gorgeous, large china platter that's filled with pork chops, mashed potatoes, bread and butter, and coffee. I mean, delish. Mary's noticing how much louder these men's steps are and thinks to herself, a woman probably actually cooked this meal and must be upstairs. And so she's got to be also wondering, what part in all this does she have? What I find interesting is she is eating this delicious meal on a cot while the men who kidnap her are sitting on the floor around her and they're eating dinner together. And I gotta be honest, the meal that's prepared, the pork chop, the mashed potatoes, that's exactly something my dad would make me. But frankly, it's just not the meal that I would imagine a kidnapper would make for their kidnapped person, right? I mean, I expect them to be serving gruel. I wonder if this was the moment when things really turned for her, because up until now, Mary's dealt with the kidnapping and with these men very calmly, but you've got to imagine she's terrified. But as they start talking to each other around this platter of pork chops and potatoes, the vibe is just shifting to a sort of, I don't know, I want to say um, kidnapping campfire of friendship. And Mary starts to understand why this is all happening in the first place. As the men start drinking their homebrew and their whiskeys, they start to, you know, loosen up. And the line between kidnapper and acquaintance gets blurred. One of them bemoans that he never even got a fair shake in life and that he always wanted to become a doctor and and that he thought that he was pretty smart, but he just couldn't afford to go to college. And Mary, upon hearing this, I think feels some sympathy for him and she decides to regale him with her college experiences in Rockford, Illinois. And this sort of like want and knowledge kind of men together and they start communicating and befriending one another. Yeah, one by one she learns how they're all down on their luck. They're poor, they're working men trying to make ends meet and really just trying to escape the economic downturn that they're all living through. One that Mary happens to be insulated from. And they offer her some whiskey and she politely declines. But throughout the night, she gets them laughing and hollering and hooting. And and she's frankly like a really good dinner party guest, even under these kidnapping circumstances. Yeah, one of the men tells her, I'd recommend you to any kidnapper. And then he adds, but I wouldn't put it in writing. (laughs) (laughs) And another one, this is so sweet to me, asks her, if she saw him at a dance, would she dance with him? And she says yes, and then he jokes with her and call the cops at the same time. And they even ask her if she hates them for doing this to her, which I think goes to show you, like, how bad they feel about it, right? And Mary comforts them and tells them, no, she doesn't hate them. And she understands why they felt they needed to do it. And she tells them that she is their friend. And I don't think this is a survival tactic. I think she genuinely has, through this conversation, they share this like empathetic moment where they all become friends. So to me, it's reminiscent of like Wendy and the Lost Boys. Right, because they kidnap her and they're saying, 
oh, please, just be our mom. Just stay. Tell us another story, Wendy. And she's sort of acquiescing. Anyway, once they're all done with this dinner and the drinks, they leave Mary with a few detective magazines and the radio, and she stays up till about three. But at this point, she's certain, uh, fairly certain, that she's not in any danger at all. And one of the last songs that she hears on the radio that night is called A Perfect Day. And as if to just put a point on all of that, in the midst of the night while Mary is fast asleep, the commanding leader of these kidnappers who's keeping watch outside the door, he goes in and he drapes an extra quilt over her to keep her warm. So this scene is just in stark contrast to what Mary's father and her brother Henry Jr. are experiencing back at home. It's a tense, sleepless nightman, and at 3 a.m., they're still awake, pacing restlessly. The judge is only able to sleep for 30 minutes before he wakes up just from stress, and Henry Jr. doesn't get a wink of sleep. Their house is still full of friends right now, and everyone's feeling this nervousness. Every creak of the floorboards startles them. Everyone's just very much on edge. It's the next morning at 9 a.m., The phone rings, and as you can imagine, the whole house jolts awake. They are ready to go. They're called into action, and Mary's brother answers the phone, and a voice on the other end says, It's the gang calling. Put the judge on. Mary's father grabs the phone and listens to their demands. He begs them to be reasonable. He's just so torn up by his daughter's kidnapping, and he's explaining he can't afford this $60,000, he can only afford $30,000, and he tells them, men who are worth $100,000 a few years ago are worth $10,000 now. I'm talking common sense. I know you will be reasonable with me. Please. And the kidnappers are like, oh man, $30,000? Seriously? I don't, uh, you know what? Let me, let me call you back. Meanwhile, back in the basement of the farmhouse where Mary is being held, the commanding leader of the kidnappers comes downstairs and comes to Mary, and he asks her if she's comfortable, if she needs anything. He even asks her if she's lost her appetite due to the stress. But Mary is okay. She asks for a cup of coffee, which he gives her, and then he tells her point blank, I've just called your father. He's a good fellow. Will he keep his word? And Mary replies, he always keeps his word. He never breaks a promise. Now at this point, the phone rings again at the McElroy house, and the judge gets on the phone, but it's just a friend offering assistance, and he begs them, do not call me again. I I need to keep this line open. And he hangs up, and the phone rings again, and it's another friend he has to hang up on. I got to tell you, it's the city is buzzing. All the most powerful men in Kansas City, Missouri, are sitting around this phone, chain smoking, waiting, unable to do anything until this gang of thieves calls back if they ever do. And I want to keep in mind, this is the 1930s. No one has call waiting. If someone calls you, your phone is tied up. So they're trying to keep this line open so The kidnappers can call. And the phone finally rings, and it's them. The kidnappers are on the line. They ask for $40,000, 10 more than Judge McElroy can give. He begs them again to please be reasonable, but the kidnappers are suspicious. They say, how do I know you will play fair with us? And the judge replies, I'll play square with you. You know I will. You don't know me, do you? Do you know I never break a promise? I never break one. When I give you my word, it is done. There won't be any trouble unless you make it. I promise that. Have the little girl there, won't you? Be a sport. Please think of a father's heart. I am being square with you. Now, in return, save me more suffering. A man can stand just so much. Be reasonable, won't you? A man can stand only so much. So the kidnappers hear this plea from the judge. They pause, they consider it, and I can't imagine what the judge is thinking at this point. You know, the fate of his daughter's life is in their hands. 
she and her brother are all he has. The kidnappers come back and they accept the initial offer of $30,000. And Mary remembers that after this second phone call, the leader of the kidnappers came down and told her, he's a good man. I admire him. He's done a lot for the town, unemployed and all that. But a man can't work for $2 a day. And that's all there is to it. Then around 1 p.m. that day, Judge McElroy and Henry Jr. leave their home with the $30,000 in cash wrapped in newspapers. All their friends and the press and the police are left behind because they beg them not to follow them or do anything that might scare these kidnappers and put Mary in danger. But the judge's friends are worried too. I mean, what if they get robbed on their way to the meetup? What if it's a trap? I mean, everything could go wrong and they have no one there to help them if it does. Mary's father and brother drive the 25-mile road in total silence. It's an awkward car ride, I think. But they're, you know, they're sleep-deprived, they're anxious, and they're pissed. But they have this hope that if they can just do everything right, they will see Mary alive again. And when they arrive where they've been told to go at 1310 State Avenue, they find a note left for them inside a mailbox with instructions on how to proceed. It's like a treasure map. And behind them, a quarter mile, are a couple of the kidnappers trailing them. They're making sure that they're alone, that no one's following them, that they're staying true to their word. So they've got eyes on them. And probably that they can follow these clues that have sort of been left behind. In because case I guess they get lost. <laughs> yeah, and if you if you have not done a lot of kidnappings, you'd want to take this opportunity and really have fun with it. And they do. Yeah, like, are they doing it right? How long does it take them to solve the clue, right? Yeah, so this map takes Judge McElroy um, to a second note that's buried in the ground. So this dignified judge finds himself on all fours digging through the dirt until he finds it, which then directs him to a third note that's left for him in a tin can. And that gives directions to the meetup location on Muncie Bluff Road. Judge McElroy and his son are just disheveled, sweaty, covered in dirt. But you know what? They're making memories together. The judge and Henry Jr. pull up to the desolate country road, and there they see two men waiting for them. They have bandanas covering their faces. They have dark glasses that I assume are completely fogged up because of their masks, you know, mask life. They've got overalls and shotguns, and they're pointing their guns threateningly at the judge and his son. It feels dangerous. The judge hands them the money wrapped inside newspaper, and as he does so, he tells these men that it's not all in the proper bills like they had asked for. And, you know, he probably shouldn't have said anything because then the kidnappers start chatting. They're not sure what to do. This is a violation of what they have requested. And they almost call the meeting off. But the judge begs them, and eventually they just accept the money as is. But Mary is nowhere to be found. So the ransom is paid and delivered. It is $30,000, which during the 1930s is a lot of money. Frankly, it still is. And the family of Mary McElroy just has to sit and wait. They have done all they can do. They just have to hope that Mary comes home safe and sound. But the question is, is how much longer must they wait to see Mary? And will she return to them in one piece, safe and sound? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Back at the farmhouse, the kidnappers are preparing to let Mary go. But first, they got to make sure she doesn't take any clues home with her. So Bossy Guy demands that Mary strip naked so that he can make sure she isn't concealing anything. I think she's pretty horrified by this request, and she refuses. Believe it or not, he doesn't press the issue further. Chivalry, good guys, am I right? You mean he takes no for an answer? Mm-hmm. Wow, okay, progressive. So she's waiting in the basement for their next move, knowing that today is the day she will be released. And then she hears those heavy footsteps coming down the stairs again, and around the corner comes a masked man holding a small, fragrant corsage of red roses in his hand. So sweet. He just stands there waiting for her approval, and she accepts these flowers. And after accepting the flowers... (laughs) They blindfold her with a faded bandana and they lead her up the stairs and into the sedan. And all the while, they're telling her how much they're going to miss her. They even give her a few dollars so she can get home. When the car eventually stops, one of them guides her out onto the street and then they leave her and then they disappear back into the car. Parting is such sweet sorrow. I just imagine her holding a bouquet of flowers just as they get back into the car. It's such a weird scene and the engine revs and the men drive off and Mary then rips the handkerchief off her face and she gets one last look at them and she waves at them as they shrink in the distance and they wave back at her this final goodbye moment they all believe to be the last time they're going to be around each other and to Mary's surprise she sees the faces of her kidnappers for the very first time and she realizes They're all actually pretty young and actually kind of cute. It's like, I imagine that's how Belle feels when Beast transforms in Beauty and the Beast. Disney adult. When Mary turns around, she realizes that she's at the Milburn Country Club. She knows this place. She walks over to the front office and tells the manager who she is. And he calls Judge McElroy right away. And Mary tells this guy proudly, I didn't break once. All told, Mary was held captive for 29 hours. When Mary arrives home, I imagine there is like a crowd of well-wishers. Her parents, friends, paparazzi, the press, the media, police. People are cheering, cameras are flashing, and Mary is just so relieved to be home safe with her family. And honestly, at this point, if I was held captive for 29 hours, I would not want a huge party because she probably feels dirty and, you know, she missed her facial. So, like, who knows what her skin is up to at this point. But she enters grateful. Yeah, all the most powerful people are there. And she's really, you know, she's hamming it up. She tells her friends, oh, you know, I'm sorry I couldn't make it to the racetrack. She jokes that she was detained elsewhere. (laughs) She's got jokes, folks. She's She's got got jokes. jokes. And she tells her dad's friends that she was glad she got kidnapped. I mean, in some ways, I think when she returns home, people think this ordeal is now over. You know, she's no longer kidnapped. She's safe with her family. But really, this is just the beginning. Mary then sits down with the police to go over what happened to her and what happened while she was in captivity. And she tells them about the basement and the four men who came in and out of the room. And she's asked to repeat her story over and over and over again. And her father is promising her, we're going to catch these criminals that kidnapped you. But Mary tells the press, I don't believe I'd like to see any of these men go to the penitentiary. 
Mary actually ends up taking the dollar that her kidnappers gave her when they released her, and she has it framed as a memento of this sort of unexpected adventure. And truly, I believe Mary does wish this story would just end here, but it doesn't. I think it goes without saying that kidnapping the daughter of a city manager who has the police department at his disposal puts a pretty big target on your back. And it only takes a week for the police to catch up with Mary's kidnappers. How exactly they put the pieces together is unclear, but apparently some of Judge McElroy's friends wrote down the serial numbers of some of the money they had lent him, which meant it could be tracked if it was spent. Three men are apprehended almost immediately. Clarence Click and the brothers George and Walter McGee. It's determined pretty quick that Walter McGee was the leader of the group, that bossy guy. He wrote a very long, very detailed confession for the police, and it all gets published in the Kansas City Star just a week after Mary's kidnapped. Now, his brother George and pal Clarence don't really have a ton to add because it's so detailed, but they do acknowledge Walter's confession and say, yeah, it's pretty much what happened. It's correct. Now, in the week before they were arrested, they did get to spending the money. All three men bought new cars, and Walter McGee, he actually tried to pay off the mortgage of his grandmother's farm. Judge McElroy, when he was collecting the money back after they were arrested, he refused to collect the money that was used to pay the mortgage for his grandmother, which, again, I think shows what a good family this was. But in total of the $30,000, the police collected about 19500 of the ransom back. Yeah, I gotta say, I really like that even though Judge McElroy's out ten grand, he still wants to make sure this older lady's mortgage gets paid. And I think that you do see a sort of family resemblance here between him and his daughter, right? Because they both come from money, but they're not so out of touch where the common man's struggle is concerned. Totally, but these kidnappers couldn't have kidnapped a better person or a worse person. It's like a double-edged sword because the McElroys have money in their pockets, but also the police. Yeah, totally. They make quick work of catching these guys. But I do want to mention that there were actually four of them in total who kidnapped Mary. There's the McGee brothers and Clarence Click, who they caught. And then there's a man named Clarence Stevens who was never found. So, the three men that are apprehended are charged with two kidnapping crimes, using mail in a kidnapping and transporting a kidnapped person across state lines, which, you know, to be fair, is a bit of a technicality. Kansas City is famously on the border of Missouri and Kansas. It's not really a surprise that they would cross state lines. So the three men are tried separately, and there are all sorts of people coming out of the woodwork to testify against them. And I mean that literally. Like, there's a man who works at a lumberyard who overheard the brothers planning the kidnapping. He testifies at the trial. And in addition, Walter's ex-wife, who at the time is engaged to Clarence Click, she's got a type. Think about that. She testifies that she was forced at gunpoint to cook dinner for Mary. Maybe that was the light footfalls that Mary heard when she had that delicious dinner of pork chops and mashed potatoes. And in addition to that, and the most important testimony, is Mary McElroy. She testifies in every single one of their trials. Now, for a woman who said she didn't want her kidnappers put behind bars, she doesn't shirk her responsibility in upholding the law. And I don't think it's easy for her. She's near tears for a lot of her testimony. And she describes her time with the men as being constantly threatened with death, referring to how they held her at gunpoint. But she does add, I desire it understood that I am not seeking vengeance. I'm not looking for revenge. It was their crime, not mine. And that's all there is to it. And in my opinion, she sounds defensive because she is. She's really struggling because on the one hand, she feels sympathy for them. But on the other hand, there is a huge amount of pressure to tell her story in a way that makes sense 
to the public at large. And I don't think they want to hear in court that she framed the money that they gave her or that she accepted the bouquet. Ugh, it feels so conflicting to be her in this moment. But in the end, it's her testimony that would lead to a shocking verdict. Clarence Click is sentenced to eight years. George McGee, who is 23 years old at the time, is sentenced to life in prison. And Walter McGee, the 28-year-old leader of the kidnappers, he is sentenced to hang by the neck until dead. The death penalty. Oh, so harsh. And as this verdict is read, Walter doesn't show any emotion on his face, but inside he is pissed. And when he walks out of that courtroom, he's heard mumbling to himself on the way to his cell. I don't see why anybody should be hung for a thing like that. And it may come as a surprise that almost no one agrees with him on that. The verdict is seen as a great victory. The U.S. attorney and the director of police think it will deter any future kidnappings from ever happening in Missouri ever again. And police chiefs around the country think so too. One person who does not see the verdict as a triumph, believe it or not, is the kidnappee, Mary. She's stunned. Her father's pretty pleased. Um, This was kind of how he wanted it to go, but she falls into a deep depression. She starts having mental breakdowns. On one occasion in November 1933, her breakdown sends her to the hospital for three weeks. Click and the McGee brothers are facing major consequences for their actions. And Mary knows that it was her testimony that helped seal their fate. If she maybe had said something different or maybe defended them more, I mean, maybe she could have spared them such harsh penalties. I mean, Walter, of course, most of all, as he has the death sentence. Mary does start visiting the three of them in prison, though, trying to help them as much as she can. She sends George McGee a radio and a mattress, which is so funny because it sort of spins them providing the cot and radio for her at the beginning. She tells the reporters that question her, I want to help George if I can. You know, he told me once, you know, that he wanted to study medicine. She just sees the possibility in these men. And she visits them all. And while doing so, the men assure her that they have no harsh feelings towards her. But that's, that's not enough to quell her guilt. She has nightmares about them being in jail and their fates. She just can't stop thinking about them. Their whole lives are being taken from them for something that in retrospect, she feels is so small and unimportant. When Clarence Click is released in 1938, she helps him get a job. She helps George McGee get the resources to further his education from prison. And he keeps a picture of Mary in his cell. Oh, and prisoners were given $2 a month in allowance, and Walter starts saving his to buy yarn, and he spends his time crocheting things for Mary. He crochets gloves, a handbag, two jumpers, a dress. I just like to picture that he probably wasn't that good at it, but she's wearing them, you know? (laughs) Like it's lopsided. But wasn't Walter earlier the one who put a quilt over her to make sure she was warm. That's right. I mean, it's like, it feels like what you said before. It's like they're almost playing it out in reverse again. Mm. But while she's publicly advocating for the men who kidnapped her, around town, this is getting her strange looks from the community. People start writing her letters saying things like, what's the matter with you? And now she's already riddled with guilt and what she did to get them to this point, and the letters just make it worse. And her behavior just gets more and more erratic. One night, she runs off without telling anybody where she's going, and as you can imagine, her father, who has, you know, PTSD from this first time around, he's terrified. He thinks she could have been kidnapped again. So he makes a bunch of calls, and eventually they find her, and she's just in a daze on a bus to normal Illinois. So you see, it's like Mary's trying desperately to get back to normal, but it's not as simple as purchasing a bus ticket. 
Now, immediately, she's ushered back into a plane back home to Kansas City, and she tells authorities, I feel like a murderer. She then says, don't misunderstand me. I believe in capital punishment, but I can't help feeling sorry for those men. I think all kidnappers but mine should hang. Which just, it just does sound like a woman who's torn between society's expectations and her own morality. She knows that what's happening to these men is wrong and she thinks it's her fault, but then everybody around her is telling her she's crazy. And so it just must feel like nobody understands her except really her kidnappers. The only break she gets from the turmoil she's experiencing is in February of 1935. Now, Judge McElroy does not have the same love or sympathy to Mary's kidnappers. I mean, they made his life a living hell. However, he loves Mary, and he sees Mary is in pain. And when Mary asks him to help write a letter to the governor of Missouri to stay the execution of Walter McGee, he does what any good father would do. He listens, and he helps her because he loves her. And, you know, he's been clocking her. He's been watching her since this happened. She has not been the same. He must have been so worried about her and anything that's going to ease her suffering at this point, he'll do. So it does take months of convincing. But two days before Walter is set to be executed, Mary and her father convince the governor to stop it, at least temporarily. And it's actually Walter's birthday that day. Could you tell me how great that present is, right? Wow. Wow. Totally. So this feels like a big success for Mary, right? It's a big win. She can now finally be at ease. You know, Walter won't be punished by death, right? I mean, in her mind, she's no longer going to be a murderer, right? No, I mean, her life is really still in tatters. All of her work to help the kidnappers makes the people of Kansas City upset. And her friends condemn her pleas for the kidnappers. So she isolates herself from them. And she never marries. And she turns to opium to ease her pain. And Judge McElroy's career isn't faring any better. His standing in the community collapses when he's charged with tax fraud and embezzlement. You really hate to see it. Yeah, as it turns out, Judge McElroy used city funds to reimburse himself for the ransom. And partly because of the investigation into him, his health quickly deteriorates and he dies in 1939. And I think it's a pretty fair thing to say that Judge McElroy is Mary's closest confidant at this point in her life because she's isolated from the community and her only real advocate is her father and he's just died. And with him gone, she's deserted, and maybe her brother's in her life, but still Mary falls into an even deeper depression. On the morning of January 21st, 1940, Mary's maid discovers her body in her sunroom, a 25 caliber pistol under her hand. She has shot herself in the right temple only a few hours earlier. Her final words were written down on a note, My four kidnappers are probably the four people on earth who don't consider me an utter fool. You have your death penalty now, so please give them a chance. Mary is buried in the family plot with her father and her mother. When her kidnappers, Walter and George McGee, hear about her death, they mourn her like a sister. They call her the best friend they ever had. You know, I get the sense that Mary was a really good person and a really complex one. Her intelligence allowed her to see past what people of her pedigree in society generally thought appropriate. But doing so made her really lonely. There was no place for her. And in her book, she wrote, On the Grounds of Incompatibility. I divorced myself from the world I had once known and been a part of. I mean, she writes that she felt incompatible with the world. And even though we know that she had a bunch of positive things to say about this experience, it does seem like the whole thing sort of pivoted 
her very guarded life and the trajectory that the kidnapping set her life on just never let up and ultimately was the death of her. In this story, I really am struck by the humanity that all of them experience. The kidnappers marry the judge, and that's why I love that we're telling it, because in the first episode of our podcast, we talked about how the lines between guilty and innocent, good and bad, can be really blurred. And I see that so much in this story. I mean, you've got good-hearted kidnappers who suffer more than they frankly deserve. You've got Mary who unwittingly condemns them to their fate, and then she tries to make amends. And then you have a judge who is all for law and order, but he bends the law to get his daughter back. All goes to show that we need more victim advocates out there, because as we found out, they're not the only ones who suffer when injustice is done. Yeah, this story feels so far in the past, but its consequences feel really familiar. Uh, So we just, we want to add, if you're thinking about suicide, are worried about a friend or loved one, or would like emotional support, the Lifeline Network is available 24-7 across the United States. It's free and confidential support. Please call 800-273-8255. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources to tell today's stories. Among them, we found the following sources particularly helpful. An article in the Kansas City Times titled Ransom Mary McElroy and an article titled The Statement Made by Walter McGee, the Kidnap Leader, in the Kansas City Star. We highly recommend you check these out if you want to learn more. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tana Robbins and Julie Magruder. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner, and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hansdale Shee. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.